Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have on Benjamin Boone. Boone is an American jazz saxophonist, a composer, professor, and a U.S. Fulbright scholar to Ghana and the Republic of Moldova. His Origin Records album, The Poetry of Jazz, was the number three best album of 2018 in the 83rd annual Downbeat Readers Poll, and it was featured on NPR's All Things Considered, The Parish of You, and many others. This was a fantastic and, as you can imagine, a wide-ranging conversation. Let's go meet Benjamin Boone, and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best. So, Ben, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Oh, man. Well, I mean, pre-pandemic, it was a little bit different because I've been a little bit cautious and some of my favorite places like Tokyo Garden aren't uh, open anymore. But uh, so part of it is is due to seating and takeout availability and stuff like that. But said my go-to place, you know, it's like I don't want to cook dinner or something. My favorite place is home. But besides that, Don Pepe, you just can't, you can't beat Don Pepe. And I, I for a, a really great veggie burrito, that's also a limitation that I have. And I just love fasica, Ethiopian food, fasica, can't beat it. You want a bowl of noodles, noodle cue. You want some absolutely fabulous, fabulous nori rolls or something, you go to Umi's. Yeah, I can't beat it. What do you like to cook at home? Uh, well, during COVID, we had it rotating between me and my sons and my wife and stuff. And so I make a pretty mean mesor doll. So mm. one of my tasks during COVID was learn how to cook Indian food. So I, I do a pretty, pr- pr- some pretty good Indian food and even make some pretty good uh, Indian bread. And uh, my wife makes some of the best French bread that I've ever tasted in my life and a fabulous sort of broccoli stir fry with peanuts sauce which is great my oldest son who was here in covid made became a a, a fabulous baker and made all of the different pastries and things like that so you know we uh we ate pretty well that's wonderful what is the what is the biggest challenge or obstacle with learning how to cook indian food you know i think it's it's getting fresh spices and I think it's letting it sit for a really long time and using copious amounts of uh, copious amounts of ghee and ginger, which that's what I think. But, but here's the trick to, to Chinese food, because I tried my hand at Chinese food and this is so simple and so. But I didn't really understand the concept of blanching vegetables. But if you blanch your vegetables before you stir fry them, then it tastes like what Chinese stir fry, like it mings or something like that. You know, so blanching the vegetables is the trick that I learned. Which could, it retains, uh, it retains more flavor, right? It doesn't dilute it down when you overboil or overcook something, right? No, it doesn't at all. The flavor is locked in and, you know, it's like when you stir fry broccoli, for example, it's hard for the broccoli to get evenly heated in a stir fry pot right? Mm. So part of the problem is the outside would get more cooked than the inside. But if you blanch it for like 90 seconds, just 90 seconds, right? And then you put it in the stir fry pot. It's for some reason, it makes the stir frying process very, very different. It's sort of, it's almost like the stir fry then just locks all that in or something like that. But that was a real eye opener. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I think people get stuck with uh, the recipes that they know. And then that's partly just, you know, American cuisine is is pretty limited, but 
if you look at, if you just take a cuisine and just dig into it, it just opens up so many doors. And I, I like what you're saying about uh, letting things sit. Um, recently, I've messed around with Cuban cuisine and have learned this uh, concept of sleeping beans, where you cook the oh. beans and then they, they sit for multiple days. And then the, the, the water that releases from the beans turns into this uh, broth Wow. Um, that, you know, that they sleep in and then they just, the, the flavor hits back and forth until you get this really thick, almost gravy. And you can only do that if you let them sit. Um, but I think we're, you know, we're fast. And so we don't want to wait for things. Do the beans, when I've done that with beans, does it start to bubble? It starts like to bubble. I do juice? it. Yeah. I do it in my, uh, my, my slow cooker and then I'll refrigerate them and then I'll reheat them again. And they'll just just come to life it's a it's it's a it's a magic thing and it's you know it's part science part tradition you know that's what you're learning with a lot of these cuisines you're learning traditions people cook these things for hundreds if not thousands of years and there's a lot of received wisdom there that you can learn and it's it's a it's a fun thing and it gets you in your kitchen too and so i know we talk on this podcast we talk a lot about where people like to eat out in uh fresno which is an, an important thing to support small businesses but at the same time i think for your own enrichment learning to cook a cuisine that is foreign to you um there's no greater learning experience in my mind and part of what you said brings to mind you know one of my favorite books is the music lesson by victor wooten it's what lessons we can learn about life right through music exploration and what what you just said brings to mind back back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they were, you know, making a giant pot of beans or something for many people for many days. And yes, letting it sit for three days actually was a pretty practical way to go about doing it. But it's that sometimes it takes time for things to evolve. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of the the life lesson, right? And, and that can be with, you know, with a music composition, or it can be, you know, with really getting to know someone in a relationship, or it can be, problem solving, you know, if you're, if you're confronted with a problem and you think you need to solve it that minute, well, you know, it might take a few days. It might take a week. It might take a month, you know, but time, time uh, allows other, other perspectives to happen, you know, and it allows different results. Yeah. My Indian food's best on day two. <laughs> Absolutely. After it's sat and the flavors have melded. All right, let's jump into the saxophone. Uh, why do saxophones have the reputation of being constantly out of tune? Uh, probably because they are. Why? Why are they constantly out of tune? <laughs> well, it's an imperfect instrument, right? I, I think most instruments are imperfect instruments. If you if you if you really get into the physics of how instruments work, for example, okay, I happen to have mine here. Your listeners can't see it, but back on my table behind me, I have my alto saxophone, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, first of all, this is tuned. Like, like, see all the, the holes that are drilled in it? Those holes have to be precision drilled for a particular frequency, right? Mm, so yeah. the issue, everyone, imagine a saxophone, okay? And imagine it's a 100% perfect tune with itself, right? Then you have a mouthpiece that you put on, right? If I have the mouth, there's a cork and you can push it in and out. So if I have it like that, I've just messed up the physics of the mouthpiece. I just pulled my mouthpiece to the very, very tip so I've lengthened the, the saxophone by maybe an inch. So I've thrown every of these precisely drilled holes off by one inch, right? So uh, half of this instrument, which would be the octave, has now changed, right? 
And if I push it in, I can push it in too far, right? Now, if I put it exactly where it's meant to play perfectly in tune in, let's say, E flat or B flat or whatever, right? Then I can play in that key and it's in pretty decent tune, right? But then I play in a different key and that's going to be have a different tuning, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm throwing everything off just a little bit. And the other thing about a saxophone, it's not like a, a, in a guitar, you can bend a string, right? Most people are familiar with that. Or on a violin that doesn't have a fret, you can move your finger up or down a little bit to adjust the tuning. So that's a good thing to be able to adjust the tuning. And, you know, I could go in a total deep dive about the history of tuning and how uh, world actually doesn't align with the physics of what happens in nature. But we did that so we can switch keys in Western culture, but other cultures like Indian cultures don't do that or do it in a different way. But suffice it to say that and if a Western instrument can flex the tuning, it gives it the ability to align more clearly with the way things naturally happen in physics so that it can blend better with other instruments, okay? But the negative of that is that means you're constantly, with your lip on a saxophone, there's a reed and you can put more pressure on the reed and it makes it go sharp, or you can take, you, you can go down and it goes flat. Actually, I haven't even warmed up on this instrument since my rehearsal last night, but I'll, I'll demonstrate that. I'll, I'll actually take the mouthpiece off. And you think I'm hitting, should be able to hit one pitch, but, but listeners, maybe cover your ears. I'm going to back up. It's going to sound like a duck being choked. Mm. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you how many different pitches I can get just on the mouthpiece. I can play a song just on the mouthpiece. That's the flexibility of pitch you have. Mm -hmm. So if you have that much flexibility in pitch, it means yes, perfectly to everything, but human beings aren't perfect. So sometimes we're horribly out of tune. Mm. <laughs> should should be. It's uh, almost like the lesson of life. Like like if we have free will, right? And and that's sort of a debate how much free will we have because of our subconscious mind and all of that. But if we're given freedom of choice, then we're going to make some wrong choices, right? Because we're human beings. So it's an imperfect system, but there's beauty within that imperfection because we can inflect pitches to sound more mournful or be in more alignment, et cetera, et cetera. Is that, a, is that understandable? Or Yeah, that's understandable. I think, you know, I, I think we take for granted the invention of standard tuning. And, you know, we think about some of the musical greats and before there was standard tuning and what they were able to achieve uh, with all of these instruments that were probably wildly out of tune with each other. You know, it's an interesting thing to think about a time before that, you know, before that kind of cohesion or symmetry existed. Yeah, um, I had a wonderful experience in, where was it? It was in Magdeburg, Germany which actually is uh, the former East Germany, and there were lots of fire bombings and stuff during World War II there, but that's not the point. I was, I was there, and, and, and you know, in that part of the world, they have, it's a thing to do like period instrument performances of like Baroque music, okay? Yes, yes. 1800 to 1700, something like that. And so they play, tele, I think, Telemann piece on all period instruments. And to a typical listener, like used to listening to, equal temperaments what we have now and what all the synthesized music and stuff is in where nothing is really a hundred percent in tune but it's equally out of tune i i heard it and my first inclination was oh my god everything is so out of tune right mm. and then it's like wait a minute just 
listen to what's there, right? It's like, don't use the baggage of 21st century. I think it was the 20th century then, but the 20th century and like put on this, but listen to it as if you were listening there. And the beauty of those tuning systems uh, that aren't standardized, right? Is that you can get a ton of different colors. So it was like going from black and white to color. It really was amazing. And that sort of relates to another of, of my favorite sonic experiences ever in my life. I was uh, a Fulbright senior specialist in the Republic of Moldova, and my host was able to get me into this cloistered monastery. And I wasn't allowed to take a recording or anything like that. But for 30 minutes, I heard these monks doing their uh, uh, singing and it was in parts. It wasn't just chant. It was, it was harmony parts and stuff. And I've never heard anything like that in my life. And it was the tuning. My, I got, I'm getting chills right now, even talking about it. The, the, sometimes they just sound the darkest of the dark, like you were descending into hell. Right. And so they were, they were purposefully not lining up to be quote unquote in tune. It was really horrendously, scarily not in tune right to where it really was just dark and made you just feel horrible and then they do something and you felt like you were in heaven or something everything was lining up everything was resonating the resonance was the best resonance i think i've ever heard in my life and they would fluctuate between these and i couldn't understand the language of what they were doing hmm. but my assumption was that they were like depicting hell and fear and all of that and then heaven and, and you know because of who they are and and you know, that taught me a valuable lesson about tuning too. There's beauty in standardization in one way, but there's also limitation in standardization, mm. right? And so that's, that's the biggest example of that, that I can, uh, that I can think of, man, I, I uh. you know, and I think it's interesting when you're thinking about Western music and you kind of think about when standard tuning emerged and then we have this, a period of time in which, you know, we have beautiful romantic music that uh, kind of sings with one voice. And then, uh, in the 20th century, we start to get these kind of discord, discordant sounds, you know, I mean, they're more experimenting with things that don't fit. And so it's almost like a rejection in some ways of this standard tooting of things being beautiful, perfect, melodic. Uh, and then you have this, maybe it's people growing bored with, with what fits, perhaps, but um, for me, that's, that's an interesting development. If, um, let's talk a little bit about brightness, if that's okay. So when it comes to a saxophone, how do you define brightness? You mean, you mean brightness as in tone? As quality. in your tone. Uh, what, what, yeah. what, what do we think? What, what is that? What is that? It's, it's one of those words that includes a lot of things, but what is, what's yeah. your definition? When, uh, sure. Well, uh, maybe since uh, I'm getting ready actually for a performance uh, June 27th at Fresno State to open up summer, uh, CSU Summer Arts at seven o'clock. Uh, and the bass player for that is Phil Sarkisian, who, Kisian, who, uh, is going to go into graduate school in physics. And I love physics. So I'm, I have physics sprayed on today since I talked to him for a long time last night. Uh, so brightness really means in your sound, whatever your sound is, saxophone, voice, whatever, you amplify the upper overtones. So I'll, I'll demonstrate that. So right now I'm going to just talk and say, hello. I just got brighter. And I got brighter by putting more into my nasal passages. Uh, in fact, here's something interesting. What we call vowel sounds really is change the vol amplitude of these secondary frequencies that naturally anytime anything vibrates. So we, you think I'm 
like hey, saying one frequency, but actually many, many frequencies are happening right now because I have my chest, I have my throat, and I have my nasal passages all resonating. Mm -hmm. So if I put more in my nasal passages, I get a different sound than in my chest, even if the note stays the same. So I can go Ben, and that's just my normal voice, or I can put in my chest, Ben, 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 Ben. And what I did was just, I didn't change my vocal cords, I changed the resonance chambers. Every listener expert in hearing these, because that's what our vowel sounds are. So if I go A, those are the A, E, I, O, U sounds. And the only difference in those is the brightness or the darkness or whatever of the sound, right? So we actually, that's necessary for us to be able to communicate in, in spoken language. So brightness means pumping out more of the upper frequencies. And I've actually been accused of being a little bit too bright. And part of that is because I have a, several different hearing issues in my left ear. And like, I don't hear low frequencies at all in my left ear. I can't understand speech in my left ear. So I'm really tuned to those high frequencies. And I like those high frequencies because I can actually hear them in my left ear. Mm. And it's something you have to find your own lane within the saxophone world, correct? What, what, what your degree of brightness or does it depend on the piece? Oh, yeah. Well, number one, it depends on the piece. And number two, it's just a aesthetic uh, decision like like uh, if you take someone like uh, I don't know Johnny Hodges or Lester Young or you know they got a really kind of dark airy sound and then you, you have someone like John Coltrane come along who you know he was considered having an extremely bright piercing sound too but that became one of the signature things that people loved about his sound you know in the last 10 years there's been a real trend of people uh, uh, like Joe Lovano like going back to that darker kind of airy sound so uh it's a stylistic thing and it's a personal thing and it's sort of you know what you want to do with the instrument and kind of what you want to what you want to say i guess hmm. um, if you send your child to uh elementary band uh school or the class um their chances are they're going to come home if they want to play the saxophone with the alto or tenor saxophone why why not a baritone or a soprano well baritone's too big for, yeah, for an eight-year-old, maybe. <laughs> I lugged one of those around in middle school, and it was it was heavy for me then. Uh, and soprano, talk about tuning. There's a whole physics reason that the smaller an instrument is, the harder it is to play in tune, right? The bigger the instrument, the easier it is to play in tune, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's the limitation. And I think normally it's, you know, most kids will start on either the clarinet and then switch to alto saxophone or, yeah, maybe tenor saxophone and then alto saxophone. Yeah. Okay. Let's jump into talking about uh, poetry and jazz. Um, what, in your mind, is the difference between improvising with words and improvising with notes? I'm not sure there is. I okay. think they're the same. Okay. Why? I think that, that music music has its own syntax, and words has ha, have their own syntax. So right now, uh, Jordan, we're actually improvising. Mm -hmm. You might have a few questions written down or something like that, but. I'm responding to what, and we're trying to communicate 
And I'm using words uh, that I've used before. I haven't used any new words. I probably haven't used any new phrases, but this is just what my vocabulary is, right? You might teach me a new vocabulary word today, and then maybe I'll use it later. But, but we, I have my limited however many words and phrases I know, and I'm using them to try to express something, right? And music is the same way. And I think that's a misconception a lot of people have about musical improvisation. 95% of any musical improvisation is the, the, the player using the vocabulary that they've used before, but in a new way and saying new things and responding to new situations and so responding to new contexts. And it, it, you know, it actually is a real joy. I, I saw Kenny Garrett this last weekend in, uh, in Oakland and you know, he was playing and, and the drummer did something and then he did something and then he just broke down laughing. And the reason he did that was because the drummer did something he hadn't thought of in that context that he hadn't done. And he was trying to do that, right? A new word. The drummer was introducing a new word and he was trying to do the new word and he could, he didn't get it, right? So he laughed and then he did it again and then he got it, right? So musicians love being introduced to new words and, and bringing new things into the vocabulary. So that's a very circuitous way of saying, Actually, fundamentally, there's no difference in improvising in words and improvising in music. And all of your listeners are wonderful improvisers already. Yeah. How do you teach students how to improvise? Uh, that's an area for a little bit of debate. The perfect way is the, is the same way as we learn how to speak, right? So we learn how to speak by imitating and imitating not just one person, but imitating many people and then having conversations. So that actually is a long-term process that starts when you're really young and uh it's absolutely positively the best way uh but then there are a lot of people that don't learn how to do that in music until maybe they're in college or something right so there are uh, systematic ways of learning uh how to improvise but they're not the perfect way just like with a language right mm -hmm. immersion into france when you're five years old is the best way right but if you didn't get that and you're in college man, it's like you have to do that in a classroom setting and using some type of methodology. When I teach it, and I normally don't teach improvisation, I used to run a jazz program, but I don't do that at Fresno State. You introduce very simple vocabulary, right? So it would be like simple patterns over chords that are used all the time. And then you take that pattern and you do it in 12 keys. Uh, so for the you musicians out there, like you take a very common chord progression in jazz, which is two, five, one, which would be like a D minor G seven to C. And then you learn a pattern over that. And then you take it around in 12 keys, or maybe you just learn how to do play over a dominant chord, like that G seven chord. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, da, 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 da. And then you take it around the cycle of fits. Da, 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 da. So you learn that pattern in all 12 keys over that chord application. So you're gradually doing what you're repeating words, right? And then slowly those words get ingrained so you can use them when you're when you're improvising. I think and it's I've, really hard, for example, yeah. to just take a kid who's never improvised on an instrument and then you give them a piece that maybe has the chords changing pretty rapidly and you say play something. They're not going to know what to do. It's going to freak them out. It's going to be a bad experience. It's not going to be a good experience. I like to improvise a lot with Indian ragas. Mm. I think that is so fun. And the truth is you can't really play a wrong note against an Indian raga. It's 
what you do with it, you know? Absolutely. So any of you that want to experiment, if you want to want to practice this, just Google like C Tanpura drone and play a few notes. And if it doesn't sound right, move up a half step or down a half step. And pretty soon you'll be making something that sounds pretty musical. It's really a wondrous experience. And I've had a few different music teachers that approach it in different ways. I had one that was very strict and wanted me to learn all of my scales first and really master the scales, master, and then uh, kind of sight read other people's improvisations. And then I had teachers that were just like, why don't you, why don't you just play a little riff? So make something that sounds good and just repeat it and just keep repeating. Maybe add one note at a time, which I think kind of separates, you know, pretty accurately the musical culture of the United States, which you have tinkers and then you have people that are professionally trained. Um, and if we think about tinkers, we think about maybe the birth of hip hop and, you know, cutting and splicing and uh, chopping together. Um, but then you have this other world, you know, the world of Juilliard, where you're learning to master something and be the greatest technician. seems like maybe both ways are ways to the same goal. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And remind me, Jordan, what you play, because you're you're talking music talk. So I know that you're a musician. Yeah, so I played I played guitar and bass in high school and I was in jazz band um, and uh, had a little a trio that would play and kind of switch back and forth between instruments. And you that's know, very I, cool. Yeah, I, I, I wish I would have kept it, you know, because it, it did it did fulfill something different. Having some perfectly constructed walking baseline that just carried carried a tune for 10 15 minutes and just feeling a total release because I didn't need to think about it anymore and I could just be in that uh, kind of vortex of you know creative collaboration it's just it's an experience that I you know you don't often find in music as a way to access it I think uh, so too and I'll just get on my soapbox for anyone that is out there that that this might apply to like if you have young kids or something right it's like a lot of people you know since i am do teach music right and, and i'm a professor a lot of people will say hey you know what my, my babe you know my kid is like two years old what should i be doing musically should i enroll them in suzuki or piano lessons or whatever right and you know my answer which is actually based on a lot of science is uh pick some pots and pans and and utensils that are safe right? And designated uh, a cabinet in your kitchen that is the kid cabinet, right? It's the kid safe cabinet. You don't care if those pots get beat like crazy, right? And that's their percussion room, right? Mm. And let them set up their drum set or whatever and have at it and let them just experiment, 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 experiment. And uh, doing that will create that inner creativity and expression and love of music and all of that. I think that, you know, organized classes are great when kids get a little bit older, like learning piano and stuff. But I'm going to go out on the ledge here and say that, you know, at that age, though, like piano lessons or whatever should be fun. Mm -hmm. Like if a teacher turns someone off of music at that age, I just I'm sorry. I just think that that's really doing a disservice to the kid and to the community and everything because too many people like talk to me as an adult and say, yeah, you know, I did piano lessons, but like they were telling me my hand position wasn't right. And that's all they would talk about. Or, you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah. so one person who's never going to be a professional anyway, is being turned off of music because someone's getting hung up 
about something that's not even music. You know what I mean? And that just makes me so, I mean, that makes my soul cry because I do think that part of being a human being is expressing yourself musically and like music probably predated spoken language and was our way of emoting. And I think there is something very primal about doing music. And when I say doing music, I don't necessarily mean like you're, you're playing in an orchestra, which is great, which you can do, right? But I mean, that's like high level reading and everything. I just mean like anything with music. I mean, playing four chords and making up a song about how crappy it is to be like not see people during COVID or whatever. I mean, or that you love someone and you make up a love song for them or whatever. It's just part of being a human being. So I think anything we do to turn kids off of that is really just not, not cool. So yeah, and it's, it's, you know, I definitely had my knuckles wrapped um, as a child in a small room with a, a septuagenarian a piano teacher. So I, you know, I've had that experience and it didn't help me. And I really enjoyed playing the guitar because I had control over what I was, I could, you know, I could just kind of sit and riff. And, you know, for anyone that thinks that great music is made by this kind of, process of really intensely individually focusing just just watch the Beatles get back documentary oh yeah that was great man that was I and that's how they you know made some of the greatest music that we've ever you know had just kind of farting around in a studio with each other and uh sharing ideas and any case we can go on this for a while let's let's switch gears um and talk about uh, can I make one little comment go ahead please 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 from a from a professional perspective, none of the Beatles was technically excellent at their instrument. And yet look at the marvelous, wonderful, transformative, lasting music that they made. Mm-hmm. You know, I so I mean I just wanted to make that point. Yeah. yeah. Now, if you want to stand up and do violin concertos, you better learn your technique. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, let, let's differentiate. If you want to perform jazz at a really high level and complicated harmonic things and all of that stuff, you better be somewhat of a virtuoso. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, like there's a line, it's like, what are, what, what is your goal? And most people don't want to be professionals. Right. And so I think, you, you know, you got to keep that in mind. Right. So in oral tradition, man, we just, we don't do enough of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Switching gears. Um, what is world music and is that term dead? Ha <laughs> Uh, the term is not dead. And I think that world music is, means from a Western perspective, because we're using it here in California, right? So world music, I think, means uh, uh, for us, it means world outside of the uh, normative Western canon, however you want to define that. And I guess Western canon would mean like Western pop music, Western folk music, Western classical music, Western jazz, Western whatever, right? So I think that's what what world music is. It's it's a it's funny. It's a definition of what it isn't rather than what it is, right? So I think that's what we mean by world music. And yes, with the internet and with expansion and well, continued. I'm going to go out on another limb here. Uh, continued colonialization by the Western world of other cultures and things like that. Uh, and by the way, it's very deliberate that that in other countries, uh, the indigenous populations were were purposefully immersed in Western music. I mean, it's, it, it has been used as a political tool and continues to, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah, I think that it's still relevant and you can still find wonderful music traditions all over the world that are very different than Western music. And it's it's like finding a wonderful flavor that's even better than lemon, lemon, uh, lemon gloss, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's like you think you know the flavor that you love and then you, you get turned. My son played me something from Senegal the other day that just blew my mind. And it's like, man, I hope that never gets erased, right? Or I was in a workshop at Fresno State and David Drexler, the librarian, played uh, some type of... Uh, uh, Bulgarian, Bulgarian singing that was like in a, in a hip hop thing, but it was using traditional Bulgarian harmonic stuff. And it completely and utterly blew my head. You know, I tend to yeah. be on the more positive end of, of uh, mixing and globalization in some respect. I mean, I, I understand that cultural globalization is happening, happening and local cultures are being erased, but at the same time, I think that there is a lot of uh, interesting, genre blending that's happening that is going to be very propulsive for music. Uh, let's talk about a, a type of world music that you might be familiar with. Um, what is high life music? Oh, okay. So uh, we're talking about a Ghanaian style of music uh, that was started, I think this is right, uh, shortly after uh, World War II. And it's, it's a musical style. It's a musical genre. And it, it has a particular, I'm trying to remember what the guitar rhythm of it is, but it's based on, it's a rhythmic groove, basically, over which, you know, you have saint singing in usually twee, the, the twee language. Getting back to the blending of styles, right? I, I just have to say that, I mean, I'm totally into the blending of styles. And in fact, that really excites me and gets gets my adrenaline going and that's actually something i'm really 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 interested in doing and i was in in ghana in 2017-18 for a year and that's what i tried to do you know try to fit saxophone into high life music or uh af, you know the afro pop being done in ghana or jazz or i got to go to ethiopia so uh you know, how, to, how you blend it in Ethio jazz and what is Ethio jazz compared to whatever. So I actually think that those intersections are some of the most interesting things happening in music right now. I like Ghanaian jazz and Ghanaian traditional singing and Ghanaian uh, drumming and Ghanaian pop music uh, a little bit more than I like the high lifestyle, but that's just me. All right. Uh, our next section is called overrated versus underrated. All right. First one, uh, the music of Kenny G over or underrated. Mm. The music of Kenny G is overrated, but FYI, Kenny G actually can play different music and he's actually a really good jazz musician. He's just making a bunch of money. So Kenny G as a saxophonist is underrated. Kenny G's music is overrated. Do you think Kenny G hurt or helped the soprano saxophone as an instrument? Probably helped because people know what it is. Okay. All right. Next one. Uh, Jolof Rice, over or underrated? Over. Why? You know, uh, just absolute truth be told, my, 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 I, there are several things in Ghana that I, I love in the food that I love, but there are certain spices that they use that I just couldn't really get used to. And, and one of those flavors is like things that are really saturated in palm oil. Mm. So, you know, palm oil and me, the flavor just isn't like, I never got used to it. Mm. All right. Next one. Um, what about uh, you? 
you, I think uh, you like you know, it. I like, right. I like it. It's not something I eat regularly, but I do enjoy it from time to time. Um, but it's something that is a, an occasional, I don't want to say treat, but an occasional choice, not something I want on a regular basis. But foo-foo, um, foo-foo is interesting. Yes. I, I, you know, I, I'm honestly not as familiar with West African food, uh, but I would like to become more familiar. Um, the next one, uh, the tone of Stan gets over or underrated. Well, that's assuming people like, I, I, I'm not, I don't particularly care for Stan Getz's sound. Okay. Why? Uh, airy and tinny. Hmm. He has a certain vibe that people associate with him. It's a kind of, I'm sitting on a, sitting under a cabana. I maybe have a margarita. There's a, well, I can tell you why he had that vibe. If you, if you want a little divergent, if you want yeah, absolutely. tangent. Fire away. Yeah. So I got, I got this from my saxophone teacher who played with Stan Getz a lot and, you know, Stan was always high. Right. And, 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 you know, my, my, my teacher, Jerry Coker was, was straight, right. This is on the Stan Kenton band and other bands. And so Jerry was like, you know, why don't you just not be high? Right. I mean, just try it. I mean, you'd be even better if you weren't, which is the case 99% of the time. Right. It really is. People think that they sound great, but then if you hear a recording, they, their time is usually really screwed up, right? So in Stan Getz's case, so he did try, right? He, he tried recording, not in those, actually, I can't remember what those recordings are. Those are his worst recordings, right? Mm -hmm. And so his lagging time and his sense of like Frank Sinatra-esque timing and how he does things, that, that's because he was high all the time when he played. That makes a lot of sense, um, which probably is true of a lot of jazz musicians of that period as well. I mean, we've heard all the stories. Um, next one, uh, James Joyce's book, Ulysses, over or underrated? I can't say because quite frankly, I think I read a page and gave up. Okay, so maybe a little bit overrated in your mind <laughs> um, if you gave up that fast. All right, next one. This is not an over or underrated, but just a choice. Uh, Giant Steps or a Love Supreme? Pick one. Oh, a Love Supreme. Why? Uh, it gets back to the whole world music, you know, hyper uh, technical versus hyper emotional expressive. So uh, John Coltrane's version of Giant Steps was a, a brilliant technical achievement based on actually some theory that he came up with. It's really interesting, fascinating, and deals with his spirituality. But the actual performance is hyper technical. You know that pattern I sung you, da 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 da, or the da 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 da. He does that like. 67 times right mm. because he's just trying to get through the changes right but a love supreme is this hyper emotional expression of inner struggle in an inner desire to know something beyond human experience i don't you know it's a searching for beyond that's just incredible so mm. that that's that appeals to me okay uh, next one, uh, Guinness, the beer, over or underrated? I would say I love absolute dark beer. So it's overrated because it's not as good as like uh, uh, some of the Bavarian beers that you can find, but it's it's much better than anything else you can find in the cooler. Okay. Uh, having perfect pitch, over or underrated? Over. Why? I think it can be a curse. Because you're constantly, if things aren't in tune, things like that, it can be a handy little 
tool to have, but I think that that doesn't necessarily make you a good musician or make it so you improvise better or you compose better or anything. I, and I think it can be, I think it can be a negative thing too. Mm. I'd be curious what my friend Ken Froelich said, cause he has, uh, I know you interviewed him and he has perfect pitch. I did not ask him, but I should have. Oh, okay. Okay. Next, next one. Uh, now jumping in the classical world and we're going to talk about a few of the uh, pieces which are considered the standard repertoire for classical uh, saxophone. Uh, Paul Creston's Sonata for Alta Saxophone and Piano, over underrated. Under, it is, the second movement is one of the most glorious movements ever. And I think people don't associate classical music and saxophone. Um, and so maybe these pieces need to be heard, heard more by people because I think those, you know, saxophone, for whatever reason, has been placed so firmly in the the jazz category that people can't even really get their mind around it being also a, you know, an important classical instrument. Yeah. For those of you that, I mean, Google the second movement or search mm -hmm. the second movement. It's this beautiful, uh, slow movement that what it sounds kind of like a French song or something. It's really, it's it sort of like Ravel or Debussy or something like that. I think it's, it's gorgeous. You've done your homework, Jordan. Yeah. Um, next one. Uh, Ornette Coleman's free jazz over underrated. <laughs> ah, I can definitely see why it would turn tons of people off, but I, I think that it's uh, it's pretty much genius. Yeah. I, I have told this story once before, but I did absolutely have a shop teacher in middle school. If you were in detention with him, he'd turn that on full volume and you'd <laughs> have to write over and over on a piece of paper. I love free jazz for 40 minutes. Uh, I only got in trouble once because of that. Um, next That's one. That's funny. And his, what is it called? Song X or something like that. Mm -hmm. For those of you that get turned off by Ornette's totally free stuff, that's a great thing to listen to. Um, just a few more. Uh, the piece Panic by, I think his last name is pronounced John Harley. You know what? I'm not sure I know that. Okay. Um, it's, uh, it's in the, it's in the flavor of <laughs> what we were just talking about. Uh, interesting discordant sounds that, uh, you know, uh, share an emotional message, but not one that people just want to sip a glass of Pinot to. Um, next one, uh, Fantasia for soprano saxophone over underrated. That's Via Lobos. I mean, people go to it all the time. So maybe overrated, but it's a great piece. I love it. It's a great piece. Okay, last one. But it's sort uh, of like Beethoven the Symphony. It's great, but it's like that's not the only piece that exists, right? <laughs> and what what is what is your what are what are maybe one or two of your favorite classical pieces for saxophone that people may not have heard of? Yeah, I, I would have to say probably yes. Okay. So one of my favorites that's actually classical, like not 21st century, right? is uh, Eugene Boza, B-O-Z-Z-A, Aria. I think it's absolutely beautiful. And like when I'm asked to play in a church or something like that, it's, it's a, it, I think it's a great piece to, to, uh, to play for that. And then there's a composer named uh, Perry, P-E-R-R-Y, 21st century composers. And I'm trying to remember the time. Blow is the name of the piece. It's just, it's killer. It's, and you know, I have to say, the, from probably 1990 forward, there have been tons, tons of really wonderful composers who've written just total 
fabulous uh, pieces for quote unquote classical saxophone. The repertoire really has exploded and the sound that classical uh, saxophonists get now isn't trying to imitate a viola. They really have uh, moved past that. The Spanish saxophonists are just doing an incredible thing. The Portuguese saxophonists are doing have a totally different sound that's marvelous and passionate and great and Japanese saxophonists. So those are the three I'm aware of, because I've written a lot of music for saxophones, classical saxophone, and they're just, they're kicking it. I mean, it just sounds so great. So, so don't let some of the older stuff get in the way of exploring some of the newer stuff. And I think some of the, that's going to be performed. Uh, there's a summer arts class coming up starting on the 27th of June for two weeks. And there are a couple concerts for that. And the guest artists, I'm sure are going to play some of that really good 21st century repertoire. Last one, um, and I bring him up because he's reached outside of the genre. The music of, I think it's Kamasi or Kamasi Washington. Oh, yeah, my kid likes him a lot. So yeah. I think he's breaking yeah. new ground. Talk about, uh, you know, taking different genres and blending them and, and you know, putting them together. And it's not like that every single thing he does I, is my favorite piece or whatever. I listened to one of his albums recently, but I think that he's, He's doing that kind of blending of genre between popular R&B, jazz, some world influences, you know, some rap beats, things like that, and turning it into something new. So he's a really interesting person. All right. Final section before we start to wrap up. Uh, let's talk a little bit about classical music um, and the future of it. I've had this uh, similar conversations with a few different people uh, related to this subject. Um, just around the idea of uh, who, who is classical music for these days? You know, there's a lot of interesting things being done that kind of speak to the in crowd. Um, the people that are familiar with the history of classical music, they appreciate interesting and maybe uncomfortable classical pieces that uh, maybe aren't the most melodic, but explore new ideas. And then you have this other genre called classical crossover, where you have essentially uh, beautiful, maybe a slightly repetitive and uh, overlaid with electronic uh, sounds and washed in this kind of calm ambience that people, you know, will put on as study music or, or kind of, you know, environmental music where they'll just kind of push play and they'll listen to it while they clean. And so you, I, I see the classical music world, you know, kind of being pulled in a few different directions. Um, and it feels like there needs to be something that happens that's somewhat disruptive, at least to the culture of classical music. But I'll leave it to you. Um, for you, where do you see classical music going in the next 10 years? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And all of the people in that world are, are talking about it and dealing with it and, and, and all of that. Uh, I think, you know, I'll preface what I say by saying that I think since this show is about you know, basically about Fresno and the surrounding area and, and stuff that one of the greatest things that's happened in the clap for the classic for classical music is that Ray Hatoda was hired as the uh, director of the Fresno Philharmonic. And I think that as from a programming perspective, she's absolutely transformed what the orchestra does and is bringing in living composers, but, but playing music that's highly accessible and relatable with the audience and she's wonderful at programming a diversity of music too so it's not just dead white european men or even white men and that's what that's what needs to happen right because the history of classical music is a little bit 
or the performance of classical music, right? And who's performed, who's studied and all of that stuff has not been diverse. And so I think that's step number one. And we need to, to like give Ray a huge applause and Stephen Wilson, who's the executive director for moving the orchestra forward in that way. I'm just really, really excited about what they're going to do for classical music. From a non-local kind of global perspective, I guess the way that I, I look at it is, is that, uh, you know, classical music is one style of music, right? In this world of tons of different styles of music. And, you know, in a way, and this is sort of sacrilege, classical music lovers might think, oh, well, this is the pinnacle of music and this is the most beautiful music ever and we need to preserve it. And, you know, they get freaked out that things are changing, right? And that tastes are changing and all of that. But another perspective is that, you know, every culture has their own classical music, right? And Western classical music isn't any better or worse or different in a way than Indian classical music, for example, right? And so I think we need to be careful about putting classical music on this pedestal that's above other cultures music, because I don't necessarily think that's healthy. And I don't think that I think that's an embodiment sort of of our way of looking at the world, right? So we need to be careful of that. So, okay, so audiences aren't going to see as much classical music, right? And different orchestras and operas and things like that are struggling a little bit. So what they need to do, right? If they're gonna stay uh, active and relevant, right? They need to figure out how to stay relevant. And I think that like San Francisco Opera and Fresno Philharmonic are figuring out how to do it. Another thing is where do people hear classical music? They hear it in uh, sound movie soundtracks, right? So. Mm -hmm. I know the the uh, Fresno Philharmonic did a thing with film, or, or some people are doing video game uh, music concerts. And then then I'll bring up just a last point, and that is that you you know it's it's kind of crazy in a way that well how do I put this? It's it's sort of that capitalistic sensibilities have, have wound its way into the arts world. And I'm not necessarily sure that's a healthy thing. And, you know, the way that we deem whether something is viable or not, or good or not, or whatever, is like how much money it makes, right? And I don't think that's necessarily right. Like we really should be paying babysitters and school teachers, like, and, and our essential workers that we applauded during COVID, but kept them at minimum wage. You know what I mean? They, they should be the ones making like the Boku bucks, not people that are trading stocks. And so I'm letting my politics out here. Right. So, I mean, I'm not sure that we should say that because, you know, people aren't paying for tickets to a, a, a thing that that means that uh, that music's not viable or doesn't resonate or whatever. I think you need to, to value an art form for the, for the art and not for the, the money that comes in. So those are some big topics that we could spend a day talking about all in all, but it really is. Fresno's doing a great job, I think, by hiring Ray Hotoda. Uh, I think classical music's hyper valuable. I happen to love it. Uh, it actually is one is something that I, that I value greatly, but it's part of many different types of music and music tastes and everything change. That's just how the world works. And it's not necessarily better than other world musics. And maybe we need to think about how we've gotten capital sense of capitalistic sensibilities done in our music thing. And that we're letting algorithms now determine what we listen to. So we're sort of being fed the, the sugar that we 
each crave because Spotify or whatever we're listening to knows what we like and keeps feeding it to us. So maybe we're not is open to things like classical music or things that might be a little bit different anymore. So those are a lot of topics packed into that kind of one, one question. Yeah. Well, something can be good and not be profitable, obviously. Yeah. You know that, you yeah. Know? It's wonderful that we have public libraries, that we have all of these civic institutions that uh, retain our soul, which is not to say that, you know, profitable things can't be good as well. It's just sometimes the way our market works doesn't mean that that's going to translate into something being super lucrative, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't support it, I think is the conclusion I'm drawing from what you're saying. Let's close by talking about book and music recommendations. So we'll start with uh, music before we go to books. We've talked a lot about musicians, um, music obviously in this podcast, but are there certain recommendations of composers or musicians or artists that uh, you're following right now that maybe are not as heard of that people should be listening to? Yeah, and I didn't prepare for this. So great, off the cuff. I love it. Yeah, off the cuff. So, I mean, the thing that immediately comes to mind is, is during COVID, I dug out a bunch of vinyl and started going through some of my old vinyl and some of the things. Uh, really resonated with me that I hadn't heard on vinyl for like 20 years and others didn't. And, and one of the, the things that just struck me was Pat Metheny's So Falls Wichita, So Falls Wichita Falls album. I listened to that like probably 50 times or something. It, it's, it transports me to a different place. And there's a, a tune on there that is a date, like September or something. And it's someone's death date. I can't remember whose it is. But that piece, the solo that Lyle Mays, uh, Pat Metheny's pianist, does in that just continued every single time to transport me to a different place. And I just I think that's one of the most beautiful pieces of music. Like if I were on a desert island or something, right, there's so much to listen to on that album. I just I absolutely think it's fabulous. And another that just really resonated with me and it was sort of a surprise, uh, but maybe it's because I've been hearing a lot of my my kids music and stuff because they were back from school during covid is bruce springsteen's born to run those are really almost orchestra piece i mean they're classical pieces in a way in rock music right like jungle land the different transformations of rhythm of feel of groove of what instruments are playing from being really intimate to being really loud it's just i don't know it really transported me and then thinking about lyle mays uh he died sometime in the last year and so I started listening to some of his stuff and his coming home is just fabulous. And he, uh, one of his, his last tracks was released after his death. And I can't remember Eider down, I think is the name of it. Uh, and it's, it transports me to another place too. Then of course I love Barber's Adagio for strings for the same reason. I like a lot of Kenny Garrett's different stuff, like African exchange student, some of his earlier, uh, stuff where he gets absolutely, crazy i think is is great i don't like some of his poppy things as much but i think it's it's great music to listen to and then my uh uh wife listens a lot to lucinda williams on a completely other spectrum of music mm -hmm. and i really like that and my son's been listening to soccer mommy and pine grove and steve earl and groups like that and we've been singing harmony to that and so uh, that music really resonates a, a ton with me too. So I like a lot of different 
a lot of different music, a lot of different musical styles. Lastly, book recommendations. This can be about music or something you read recently or books that have influenced you. Yeah. So uh, first, I have to pump my brother Joseph A. Boone's book, uh, Furnace Creek, which just was uh, published. He's a scholar at USC, but this is fabulous. I highly recommend then Fresno is, you know, has some wonderful, wonderful authors. I, I read during COVID Mark Arax's uh, The Dreamt Land. Uh, it's a must read for anyone in California. If you want to know anything about water, it was thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly engaging. Diana Markham just came out with a, a book about her time in Belize. And it's called The oh what, the Forgotten Stone, I think it is. Uh, I read it and thoroughly enjoyed it. And then Elizabeth Kostov is the historian. Uh, is one of the best engrossing sort of mystery-ish uh, but, but travel journal things I've ever, I've, I've ever read. I think it's fabulous. I read about uh, 20 of Louise Penny's gamache books, uh, that sort of murder mystery, but with a heart and, and with a lot of psychology uh, in. I read that during COVID, and then I read the whole Maisie Dobbs series, uh, which is another sort of murder mystery, but with a with a novel-esque kind of a sensibility to it. I think I read since last summer, I think I've read 60 books, Jordan. That's one of the things COVID did. It got me into re reading again because I'd sort of not been reading. For you music people, Kenny Werner's effort, Effortless Mastery uh, is going to help you in your technique and how you think about improvising. It's a wonderful book. I mentioned Victor Wooten's The Music Lesson, A Spiritual Guide Through Music Earlier which has great life lessons in it uh, just for like think understanding how we think and why we think and why we make the decisions we make. There's a great book called predictably irrational that I love uh, for a biography. I read Frederick Douglass's uh, most recent biography, which was enlightening. I, I had no idea about half of the stuff in there. And for an understanding maybe of colonialization as in the English colonialization of the United States and, and its relationship with uh, native populations and the Brits and all of that, the kidnapping of Jemima Boone, the kidnapping of Jemima Boone uh, really shed a very human light on what that relationship was, how it was very complicated, how there were uh, uh, frontiers people who were actually trying to uh, keep peace and, and the terrible position indigenous populations were put in by being pawns between the Brits and the uh, quote unquote Americans. F fabulous, fabulous book and an easy read too. So I highly recommend that. I could go on and on. Reading is my new thing, Jordan. That's wonderful. And I'd love to talk about books on this show, but we'll, we'll close it there. Um, what's next for you? Yeah, so first, June 27th at 7 p.m., John Wright Theater opening concert for CSU Summer Arts. We're featuring uh, two-time poet laureate Juan Felipe Herrera uh, with the great band of uh, Phil Sarkeesian, Kevin Person Jr., Guzman, John Martin on percussion, Max Hempton trumpet, me on saxophone. After that, I'm uh, hopefully getting another album edited so I can send it off and then I'm headed to Ireland for a year. So I have a Fulbright to the University of Limerick's Irish World Academy of Music and Dance. And I hope to 
collaborate with a bunch of uh, Irish musicians and they actually that that university collaborates a lot with refugee populations there are lots of Nigerian refugees Ukrainian refugees etc so I hope to be able to interact and do some music with uh, with those folks as well well I appreciate you doing this Ben this has been a wonderful conversation I know people are going to get a lot from it just listening well, you're kind to ask me, Jordan, and thank you for doing it and for all that you do. And we need a jam sometime. Yes, we do. I need to need to go get my duster, though. You know, I got to dust off, dust off my instruments a little bit. But it is time for me to just like you getting back into reading. I need to get back into music. I couldn't agree more. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.